Hello? There we go. Matthew 9.35 through 10.15. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belt, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it, but if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. I mean, those may be four of the most exciting and terrifying words to put together. Now it's your turn, because now it's your turn implies that it's your turn to do something maybe that you've seen other people doing, or maybe it's even something that you've been training and practicing to do yourself, but it's going to be something obviously that's demanding, something that's that's risky, maybe a little bit dangerous, Now it's your turn. You know, another way that we might hear this in popular media is, you know, when the older, you know, character looks at the younger character, looks down at his apprentice and he goes, well, let's see what you can do, kid. And that's what Jesus does today to his disciples. Let's see what you can do, kid. Because now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. What you've seen me doing, what you've helped me do, Now it's your turn. Because up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, you would be forgiven for thinking that Jesus' disciples are really a bunch of duds. Up until this point in Matthew's Gospel, as we've been studying our way through it, you might have noticed they're not doing a lot. Jesus is really doing all the work. So what's going on with them? Well, friends, they have been doing something. They've been doing something very important. They've been following Jesus. 
They've been following Jesus. You remember when Jesus first called them, we saw when we studied Matthew chapter 4, the call of the disciples, chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Friends, we follow in order to make or to be made. You follow a recipe to make a cake. You follow instructions to make a Lego model. You follow a training program to be made a better runner. You follow a master to become a better pianist, electrician, or karate sensei. And to follow Jesus is to be made like him. To be made, Jesus says, fishers of men. To follow Jesus is to become like him. And that's what Jesus taught. He taught in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. So Jesus says, like me, you've been following me, you've been watching me, you've been helping me as I've been fishing for men, and now it's your turn. You've been following to be made like me, and now it's your turn. So Jesus turns to them and says, okay, go fish. Do you understand what this teaching means? I mean, church, do you understand what what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that following him has a destination. It has a purpose. We follow Jesus in order to be made fishers of men, fishers of women. So if we're not fishing, church, are we truly following? If we're not fishing, are we following? Notice Jesus didn't say, come follow me and I'll make you worshipers of me. Come follow me and I'll make you scholars of my word. Come follow me and I'll make you attenders of my church services. Now understand, all those things are important, but those are a means to the end. They are a means to the end of becoming fishers of men. And just as there's no such thing as a meat-eating vegan or a lifeguard who doesn't do water, or a violent pacifist, there can be no such thing as a follower of Jesus who's not like him, who does not fish. So Jesus turns to his disciples then, and friends, Jesus turns to his church today, and he says, now it's your turn. Go fish. And Matthew begins this section by by showing us the heart of Jesus. By showing us the heart of Jesus, verse 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, now the Greek phrase translated here as had compassion is psygnizomai, which literally means to be moved in one's bowels. Now, today, we, we believe that the seat of emotion, of love, and, and pity is the heart, but back then they believed it was the bowels. Which is why Isaac Watts, who wrote for us magnificent hymns like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and Joy to the World, also gave the world this hymn. Blessed is the man whose bowels move and melt with pity to the poor, whose soul by sympathizing love feels what his fellow saints endure. I chose not to sing that one today. You're welcome. Now, as funny as that is for us, the truth is, we still actually use a version of this same language today, don't we? You know, oh, I had a gut feeling. Or I had butterflies in my stomach. Or that was a punch in the gut. Or, or my stomach dropped. So still, friends, when we feel something viscerally, we don't just 
feel it here or here. We feel it in our whole person. We feel it in our whole body. And what this scripture is telling us is Jesus viscerally feels what he sees in the crowd. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Because, friends, Jesus understands what that means. He feels it so viscerally because, friends, he understands. I read an interview with a shepherd who was asked, what kind of odds for survival do you give a sheep without a shepherd? And without thinking, the shepherd said zero. And the interviewer protested, said, well, there's always some chance. And the shepherd replied, then whatever's closest to zero. He said, sheep without a shepherd are mutton on a stick. And Jesus looks at the crowds and he is viscerally moved in his whole being with compassion because he says, these guys are mutton on a stick. These are dead men walking. They are lost and they are hopeless and they have zero percent chance of survival without a shepherd. And make no mistake, Church of Jesus Christ, the plight of the lost has not improved between then and today. Without a shepherd for their souls, the lost have zero percent chance of survival, zero percent hope of salvation. Without a shepherd, they're dead men and dead women walking, sheep being led to the slaughter. Church, do we have the compassion of Jesus? Do we look upon the lost of this world and are moved like he was? Because Jesus is the good shepherd and he's come with compassion to seek after lost sheep. And friends, this is exactly what the Lord has always promised he would do. Long before the day that we have recorded for us here in Matthew's Gospel, back through the prophet Ezekiel, the Lord spoke and he was condemning the shepherds, the leaders, both religious and political of Israel, because they were not tending to the sheep. And as such, the Lord's people were scattered. And so the Lord speaks through Ezekiel to condemn these shepherds. And this is what he says in Ezekiel 34, verses 11 and 12. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will now search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among the sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. He says, you shepherds did not tend to my sheep, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to come and seek them. Friends, Jesus is the good shepherd who has come to seek and to save God's people. In fact, later on in this same prophecy of Ezekiel, the Lord declares in 34, verses 23 and 24, He says, I will set up over them, my people, one shepherd, my servant David. And I shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Friends, remember last week? Last week we heard two blind men. And do you remember what they cried out towards David? Yeah, son of David. Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David was a messianic title. Remember Matthew's Gospel? Remember we spent two weeks talking about that genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel? Yeah, I made you read that twice. Well, Matthew was establishing the fact that Jesus was from the line of David. He was a descendant of David. 
He was of the lineage of David. And that's being emphasized because, friends, just as the Lord prophesied through Ezekiel, He said, I'm going to come and seek them and I'm going to put a descendant of David as shepherd over them. And, friends, Jesus is that descendant of David. He is the son of David who has come as a good shepherd to gather the sheep back home, to save and to protect and to rule over his people. Church, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus teaches that he is the shepherd who has come. John 10, 11, Jesus taught, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And friends, why does the good shepherd lay down his life for the sheep? He does it to ransom them, to purchase them for himself. As we see when all of heaven celebrates at the end of the Bible. I love the the throne room scene in Revelation 4 and 5. And all of heaven gathers around and celebrates in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, the gospel, the good news, is that the good shepherd has come with compassion. He's the descendant of David who was promised by the Lord, and he has come to lay down his life as a ransom to purchase for himself lost, helpless, hopeless sheep from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus is that good shepherd. He has come to bring us home. And so, friends, whether you're here with us in person or watching us online, Have you responded to the shepherd's call? Have you responded to the good shepherd who has come for you to lead you home? The Apostle Peter celebrates in 1 Peter 2, verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, can you say that today? Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. And in this passage, we hear the good shepherd say to his disciples, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. In fact, look at Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Friend, the good shepherd has come, and now he sends out under shepherds, to do what he's been doing, to gather home the lost sheep. Now, it might seem surprising as you read it at first and go, well, why do you only send them to the nation of Israel? If God's passion, and in fact what's celebrated in Revelation is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation being purchased by the blood of the Lamb, then how come he only sends them to Israel? Friends, we need to understand in the context of Scripture that Jesus sends them to Israel not at the expense of reaching the other nations, but he sends them to Israel for the sake of reaching the Gentile nations. Because this is how God has planned to sovereignly reach all the nations. You might remember that the Apostle Paul, who came later, celebrated in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. 
And then Paul spends a significant amount of time later in Romans from chapter 9 through chapter 11, and he, he celebrates how the gospel came first to the Jews, but because they rejected it, it went to the Gentiles, to all the nations. And God, in his sovereign plan, had planned it that way. He knew that this was how the Gentile nations would be reached. So he had to first go to the people of Israel but knew that going to the people of Israel would result in the gospel going to all the world. So Jesus' instruction here is not to exclude the Gentiles. His command here is because eventually it would mean the inclusion of the Gentiles. But for now, he sends them first to the Jews, first to the people of Israel. And while we find this strong shepherding theme here, we also find some agricultural themes. Uh, verses nine through, uh, chapter 9, verses 37 through 38, Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And we've talked about this passage before because, friends, this is the other Lord's prayer. This is the other Lord's prayer. If, if the beginning of the service, you know, if Rich, while he was praying up here, had said, hey, let's pray the Lord's prayer together, you all would have begun, our Father who art in heaven, which we heard in Matthew chapter 6. But friends, there are two places. There are two places in the gospel where Jesus specifically gives words for his people to pray. The Lord's prayer, or, you know, the our Father, as we see in Matthew 6, but also right here. Do you notice there's actually a command in verse 38? Therefore, pray earnestly. And then he gives them words to pray, Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest. And you might remember, church, that I have periodically encouraged you to pray these very words as part of your regular prayer. Lord of the harvest, send out workers into your harvest. Because Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Church, it's not just our economy that's facing a labor shortage. Jesus says the kingdom is suffering a labor shortage, and the solution is more prayer. More prayer. The solution is not necessarily training, studies, or discussion groups, which are important. The, this, the solution is prayer. Lord of the harvest send out workers into your harvest. Why would prayer be the solution? For two reasons, friends. First, the power to save is the Lord's and not yours. You are never going to save anyone. It is the Lord who saves. It's not going to be your extensive knowledge or your winsome personality or your ability to answer every objection that will save people. It is the power of God that saves. So church, we need to pray because we need to pray for the power of God. And secondly, prayer is the solution because, friends, prayer changes us. Prayer changes us. One author put it this way, It's great when in prayer we can express to God what we're feeling, but it's better still when in the act of praying our feelings change. It repoints the person praying, taking them somewhere else. Friends, prayer changes us. Prayer repoints our heart in the direction of God's heart. And we see that the Lord's heart is for the harvest. We see that Jesus' heart is, for, is filled with compassion for the lost sheep and church. 
Prayer will give us the heart of God. We must pray until our hearts are broken. We need to pray until our compassion rises. We need to pray until the lost come seeking, until the blind come seeing, until the lame start walking and the dead start rising. We need to pray earnestly, Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest. Because church, it's our turn. Will we pray? And Jesus sends his disciples out with a message. Friends, it's not just any message. They don't get to make up and choose the message. Jesus gives them a message. He goes, if you're going the way that I've gone, you're going to go with the same message that I've gone with. Matthew 10, verse 7. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at Now, for the astute amongst us, you might say, well, that sounds familiar. Because when Jesus first appeared on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he, it says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And before Jesus came John the Baptist, preparing the way for the Lord. And in Matthew 3, 2, we hear John's message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Church, that's our message today. Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's no other message. There's no other kingdom. There's no other king, because church, there's no other hope. There's no other hope. So repent. Turn from the kingdoms and the powers of this world, because the kingdom of heaven has invaded earth, and the greater king has come with greater authority. So trust and submit to his authority and be saved. Church, that is our and this world's only hope. But how, how can the hearers, how can the hearers of the disciples' proclamation be certain of the truth of the message? How can they be certain of the authority of the message and the kingdom that they, that they give witness to? And as we've seen over the past few weeks, what's Jesus been doing Friends, Jesus has repeatedly, as we've seen these last few chapters, been establishing his authority. And he's done it in manifest ways. In fact, today's passage actually opened with a summary in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout the cities and villages, what? Teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. So it says that the kingdom proclamation that Jesus brought was accompanied by healings and actions that proved the truthfulness and the authority of his message and of his kingdom. And so now Jesus is sending forth his disciples with the same message and with the same authority as he had. Matthew 10.1 says Jesus called them to him, called, called to him his twelve disciples and gave them what? Authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, I thought this was cool, so I'm just, I put it up on the slides today, but the final phrase describing Jesus' work in Matthew 9.35 says that he was healing every disease and every affliction. Samuel? You broke my slides? Really? Was somebody going to tell me that? Oh, seriously. Wow. All right. Well, never mind. We don't need that then. Man, you guys are fired. All of you. <laughs> All right. 
Well, friends, the point being, go back to me. I don't want to see this green screen. Go ahead. We don't need the slides. We'll just, just go with it. Okay. So the point is that in 935, it says Jesus was healing every disease and every affliction. And in 10.1, it says you're going to heal every disease and every affliction. It is word for word identical. Jesus actually says, what you've seen me doing, you're going to go do. Word for word identical. Jesus has given his disciples the same message, the same authority, the same things that Jesus says he's doing, you're going to do. For example, in chapter 10, verse 8, Jesus tells them to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. That's what we've seen Jesus doing. Jesus says, you're going. It's your turn. You've heard me preach. You've seen me do it. I've given you the same message. I've given you the same authority. Go now. Proclaim the kingdom. Heal every disease to prove the truthfulness of the message that you bring. It's up to you. Because now, you who have followed, it's your turn. Go fish. So Jesus sends them out, but he doesn't just send them out. He gives them some some rules for the road there in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 10. He says, and if you're going forth for my kingdom, if you're going forth for my kingdom and for my authority, then you need to represent me well as you go. He says, if you're going with my message and my authority for my kingdom, you need to represent me well. So in verses 9 and 10, Jesus tells them to pack light. Pack light. And you remember, because Jesus himself packed light, Back in chapter 8, verse 20, it says, um, Jesus told everyone that he packs light. He says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Just as I've packed light, you pack light. Because, friends, the danger, the danger for us who follow is when we pack our own bags, we tend to trust in what we've packed more than in his provision. We start to think that actually the success of the mission is up to what we've done and have with us than what God's going to provide for us. And the danger, church, is that we start to dream smaller and we start to risk less. But if you go without a bag, well, then you're forced to trust on what he's going to provide. You're trust, trusted. You are forced to trust his provision. John Wesley who is the founder of the Methodist Church, he wrote, Among the many difficulties of our early ministry, my brother Charles often said to me, If the Lord would give me wings, I would fly. And John says, I used to answer, If God bids me to fly, I'll trust him for the wings. You see, if we think we have to have the wings first, and we have to bring the wings with us, we're never going to attempt flying. But if we trust his provision church, might we fly? If God bids you to fish, trust him for the bait. If God bids you to go, trust him for the provision. Disciples then and disciples today need to trust in the provision of Jesus' power. So just as the twelve, we need to learn because church, it's our turn. It's our turn to go. And Jesus warns his disciples in verse 11, don't shop around. Don't go house to house looking for a better offer or better food or more comfortable accommodations. Trust my power to lead you where you're supposed to go. And in fact, in his account of this, um, Luke, in his gospel, tells us in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, he says, Whenever you enter a house, first say, Peace be to this house. 
And if a son of peace is there, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him, but if not, it will return to you. It's interesting. Luke captures that Jesus talks about this son of peace or this person of peace. And what does that mean? Church, that means that God's actually already at work. He's at work in the hearts of people, making them ready to receive you disciples who come, making them ready to hear your message. God is already at work preparing the ground for you to go. And church, Chestnut Street, do you realize what this means? This means that right now God is preparing people of peace in your neighborhood. God is preparing the hearts of people of peace in Camden and in Rockland and in Hope and Lincolnville, Appleton, to, to hear his message. He's preparing the hearts of people of peace, and then he's sending us church to go to them and to go fish. And the good news about that is, friends, that means it's not about what you're doing. It's about joining what God's already doing. It's not about your power. It's about joining him and receiving his power. It's not about your provision. It's about his provision in the moment. We don't fish under our own strength. We don't go with our own authority. We don't create our own message. Friends, we're invited to join the Lord in what he's already doing in this community and beyond. So we pray, Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest because it is our turn now. And friends, the final two verses of 14 and 15 let us know just how dire this is. Jesus makes clear just how dire this is. He says, go quickly. Don't waste time. If my message is not received, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Because as that great theologian Taylor Swift said, haters going to hate hate, so shake, shake, shake it off. You never thought I'd work a Taylor Swift reference into my sermon, did you? Friends, understand that we can chuckle at that and laugh at that now, but this is a serious warning. Jesus says, don't waste time. Saying, wipe the dust off your feet is like saying, wash your hands of it. You've done what you can. You bear no more responsibility. Move on. Move on because the message is urgent, so don't waste time. You're responsible for the proclamation, not for the payoff. You are responsible for the for the report, not for the result. So don't we don't force anyone, church, into the kingdom. Shake the dust off your feet because the message is urgent. And Jesus says the harvest is ripe, and so if this harvest is not ready, move on to where the harvest is ripe. But note what he says. He says, for those who reject the kingdom, for those who reject the gospel of Christ, for those who reject the hope of salvation, there's nothing more that can be done. If you're sick and you reject the doctor and his cure, if you're guilty and you reject the judge and his pardon, if you're a traitor and you reject the king and his mercy, there's nothing more that can be done. And Jesus says all that remains is judgment. And the judgment that will come will be even greater and more horrible than the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Church, Jesus says the message is urgent and the stakes couldn't be higher. We're talking about the souls of our family and our friends and our neighbors and our community. They hang in the balance, church. And I'm moved every time I read the, the passionate plea 
of 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. He wrote, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. And church, is that our heart? Is that our cry? Because that was Jesus' heart. And now it's our turn. And as we sang this morning, we face a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. The need is undiminished and it rebukes. It rebukes our slothful ease. We must go into all the world with kingdom hope unfurled for no other name has power to save but Jesus Christ the Lord. Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into your harvest. Jesus says to his disciples then, and church, he says to his disciples now, what you've heard me speak, you go speak. What you've seen me do, you go do. What you, how you've seen me fish, you now fish. Go now, because it's your turn. For it is as we opened the service singing, these are the days of the harvest. The fields are as white in your world, and we, we church, are the laborers in your vineyard declaring the word of the Lord. Chestnut Street Baptist Church, now it's your turn. As this service ends, where is Christ sending you? Let's pray. Father, break our hearts. Give us a passion as Christ had a compassion. Give us a vision. As the Lord, you have a vision of the harvest. And send us forth not under our own power, not in our own wisdom. Send us forth with your message, with your power, and make us faithful to go. Here we are. Send us. In Jesus' name.